All right, my guest today on the A Game podcast, as we do a final 10 for the final 10 days ish of December. Obviously, I can't put these out on the on the holidays, so uh, but give or take, we're gonna have about 10 for the last uh, two weeks. So, I'm gonna do one a day based on some of our past guests. Most of them are from this year. I threw a couple other ones in there that I thought were just good episodes, good ones to relaunch. Kicking it off today with Avery Carl, she is the queen of Airbnbs. If you have not listened to this episode, it is outstanding. She has been uh, writing a book for Bigger Pockets. She's got a very successful podcast, very successful course. Awesome person. Uh, she was at the Bigger Pockets conference that I just went to BPCon 2022. And I've gotten a ton of really good feedback about this specific podcast. So it's interesting because with all the talk about Airbnbs, Avery is still going 100% hard on them. So uh, definitely give it a listen. Good business principles, good mindset principles, and pretty awesome to see somebody who was a fellow punk rocker, uh, New York City, Lower East Side, playing with the casualties, turning into a business, and uh, you would never know. So I just, uh, I love watching people that come from similar backgrounds like that turn out and know that they just have their, uh, you know, their musical wild punk rock side still going on, and they can still turn around and become multimillionaires. So awesome stuff. Really appreciate Avery coming on. I tracked it down for a while, and she did not disappoint. So Number one for 2022 rap, Avery Carl. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-game. Hi, my guest today on the A-Game Podcast is an entrepreneur who was a millionaire by the age of 31. She's a former soccer player and musician, as well as a fellow punk rocker like myself. She's lived all over the place, including New York, Texas, Nashville, Mississippi, and LA. She owns a mortgage company called The Mortgage Shop. She owns a brokerage and a title company. She's the founder and CEO of The Short-Term Rental Shop, who's been helping investors acquire short-term rentals to achieve financial freedom. They have six offices and counting in places, including Tennessee and Florida, and has sold over a half a billion dollars in real estate this year alone. Currently owning over 102 doors, keynote speaker for such prestigious stages as the BP Con, and the author of the new book, Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth, published by the one and only Bigger Pockets. She's the host of an excellent podcast called The Short-Term Show Podcast, which I highly recommend you check out. Mother of two, taking over real estate city by city. Thank you for coming on the A-Game Podcast. Welcome, Avery Carl. My goodness, you made me sound good. Like, I, to me, I just like roll around in yoga pants all day and like maybe throw on a blazer over my Lululemon t-shirt at times, but you just made me sound like a rock star. <laughs> I love it though. You know, and I think part of, um, part of exactly what you said is why I like doing these podcasts. Cause I think it helps people see that everybody's just somebody from somewhere that just has a family and you know, their, their kids leave stuff around and you know, they're just normal people that are just doing awesome things. And, and, I, and I love that you're so relatable and you're out there and you're crushing it. Cause I feel like, you know, somebody's going to hear that and say, she's just like me. If she can do that, like, let me get my first and then my second and my third. And I think it's really inspiring to be relatable. Well, thank you. 
Thank you. So um, for people who are not familiar, you have a really awesome background that I think is super interesting because you and I have a lot of similarities as far as like some sports and some music and some of the places we've lived. So um, for people who are not 100% familiar with you, can you give like a 30,000 foot view of uh, who you are and where you came from? Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in Starkville, Mississippi, which is just a very small SEC football town. Uh, the uh, Mississippi State Bulldogs are there. That's really about it. Uh, I My ticket out of Starkville was a soccer scholarship to the University of Texas in Austin. Uh, I'd always kind of played guitar and taken lessons and stuff. So I, of course, joined a band when I moved to Austin. Um, I graduated at the absolute worst time in the history of the world to graduate college, which was uh, May of 2009. There were zero jobs. So I was like, well, I'll just keep touring in these punk bands and bartend and we'll, you know, see what happens in a few years with the economy. So did that, toured all over the world, um, lived in, spent some time in Los Angeles and then New York. And when I moved to New York or after I'd been there a few years, uh, met my husband and we decided to move to Nashville. I was going to go get my, or, and I did end up getting my master's degree and uh, it was just easier, you know, easier living in the Southeast. I mean, not necessarily anymore because Nashville's really expensive now, but at the time it wasn't. And there was like this mass exodus from New York to Nashville. Like everybody we knew was moving to Nashville. All the bars in New York now had the same bar in Nashville. <laughs> so uh, we moved down and I kind of backed into real estate. I, I My goal was, and I ended up working in the business side of music in um, the like marketing side uh, for a few years, but that was the goal. And I ended up doing it, realized I hated it, but backed into real estate because uh, when we moved to Nashville from New York, our agent at the time was really trying to get us to buy in this super hip, like fast appreciating area of Nashville because, oh yeah, you can buy a house this year and it's worth this. And next year it's worth double. And we're like, well, that's great. But we didn't move to Tennessee from Brooklyn to have neighbors. So we want to move out in the country. We want to be country folks. So we did. Um, but we did have a little bit of capital left. And so we thought, well, maybe we can buy one of those houses. And then, you know, when our future kids go to college, it will have appreciated enough that we can just sell it and we'll be able to pay for their college without having to pay out of pocket. And we'll be like so smart, so much smarter than all the other parents. And then, you know, we'll, we're just these geniuses. And we didn't even know it was called real estate investing and that that was a dumb strategy, but we did it without knowing what we were doing. And luckily it ended up being a really great property. We paid 122 for it. The mortgage on that was about, 650 bucks a month and we were able to rent it out for 1550 1600 so almost a thousand bucks cash flow on one little single family so it's pretty good um and then from there we actually started educating ourselves on real estate investing because we thought well this is something that we actually want more of we want to make a business out of this so what can we buy because we only had like this much money left we thought what can we buy to that, that will make us the most amount of money, the fastest, so that we can then buy more properties faster. And so we landed on short-term rentals, but we didn't want to do it in Nashville because their regulations are really, really terrible, constantly changing. So we didn't want to mess with that. So then we thought, well, where can we buy something that is just normal for people to go rent a house instead of a hotel? So we landed on the Smoky Mountains a few hours east of Nashville because everybody that goes to the Smokies rents a cabin. Somebody owns those cabins. Why couldn't it be us? So again, jumped in head first, had no idea what we were doing. There were not all these online gurus that there are now back then that, you know, you can pay them, you know, $10,000 and they'll teach you how to do it. Uh, we just had to learn how to do it ourselves. We knew we could do it 
remotely without having to hire a property manager. We just had to figure out the systems to do it. Figured them out. One turned into five over the course of about a year and a half. Um, during that time, I would say like on our second short-term rental deal, we realized there weren't really any agents in the space who could answer our questions about like how much a property should make, where to find a cleaner, remote self-management, things like that. So I was hating, I'd been almost fired from like three jobs in three years. I'm a terrible employee. I was hating it. So I said, well, I'll just do this. I'll just become an agent and I will do this. And so I did started what would eventually become the short-term shop. Now we are in 10 markets in seven states, I believe. And um, the rest is history. We, we will sell by the end of the year. It's mid-December right now. But uh, by the end of the year, we'll, hit, we'll be at about $750 million for the year in short-term rental investments for our clients. That is amazing and a huge feat. Congrats. Thank you. So some of the things I think that are interesting about that is I feel like I did the opposite of you in the fact that I got educated. I didn't know that much. And I was out there like taking no prisoners. And then the more I learned, the more hesitant I got because there was just so much out there and you start to see more risk and you you know, you, you kind of get analysis paralysis and you get all these fears of stuff that's happened. So what was it as you were starting to learn about this, especially without having that type of help? Like, I, and I love that you have the support team that you're doing this with your husband, but what do you think it was that gave you the confidence to go out there and just say like, we're going to just scale this up and just take this to another level? Uh, so I am typically, the way our relationship works is I'll be the the visionary, like the thinker and the person that has these great ideas, but without my husband, they would never get done. I'd have tons of great ideas that never were actually executed. And my husband, which, you know, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, just does stuff. Like he doesn't think about it. He just does it. He just pulls the trigger and goes. So it was a combination of me being like, oh, you know, I think this is a really good idea. And here's why this makes sense. And let's just think about this really, really hard. And then he's like, boom made an offer. <laughs> so um, that's just kind of the dynamics of our relationship and it's worked so far. So that's awesome. And I think every, every relationship needs a gas and a break like that, because otherwise you're not doing anything or you're crashing into everything. I, I'm very much like that with my business partner that every day she's talking me out of bad ideas that I'm like, but this is so good. And I'm like, all right, you're, <laughs> you're probably right. We should slow it down. <laughs> but I'm very interested as far as like business and just the stuff you do. What type of discussions or thought processes do you have to making decisions on pulling a trigger? So I, I guess it's more of a, an underwriting question of like, where's the buy box that you guys look at something and you say, hey, I think we should do this. And then you have these parameters of, okay, it has to hit A, B, and C. Like, is that kind of where you, do you have like a line in the sand of like, this is how we're going to actually make logical decisions on what we move forward on and what we don't? Yeah, yeah. So as our portfolio has grown, our... The check boxes have gotten a little looser. And then also as the market has changed, our check boxes are a little bit looser. So we used to analyze everything down to the penny because we only had this much and this is what we can do. And so it has to hit this benchmark. Now we're more looking for, um, so at, at this stage in our investing career, we're just kind of trying to uh, get some cash out of the bank and into some properties so that we're not so heavily affected by inflation. So we're willing to go, you know, a little bit lower on the cash flow than we typically would, but uh, we're looking more for stuff that it's not necessarily, I wouldn't call it value add properties, but stuff that other people are passing over because they don't like the previous history when we know we can do better. So right now we're buying a lot of, um, multifamily long-terms in the Midwest. 
So there's a lot of things that people are passing over because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to do a new roof or they don't want to, you know, it's a 26, we bought a 26 unit that needed 26 HVACs. So that's like $80,000 worth of HVACs. You know, people don't want to mess with that. So um, I, I'm not finding stuff that necessarily needs to be completely rehabbed like a burr, but just stuff that like, oh, a lot of people don't want to do this work. Like a lot of the funds that we're competing with to buy things, they don't want to mess with this. So we'll take care of that. So really just we're finding things that we can add a little bit of value to, but not like a full on rehab. And then things that we know with our management, we can perform better than what the previous rental history is. Because so I think a lot of investors, whether it's short term or long term, get so hung up on the rent rolls and the rental history and not is it being optimized? Like, is this the best it can do? Probably not. So what can I do to make it get there? I love that. I think that that's awesome. And I like what you said too, because a lot of the analytical types, they want one solid answer of like, this is what it is. And you threw like all those other variations in there of like, well, you know, our personal situation is going to change. So our strike price is going to be a little bit different. And then the market variation is going to change. And when you throw those two in there and you mix and match that formula, there's so many different things. You know, it's like jujitsu. People go, well, what do I do when he does this? And it's like, is he using his left hand, his right hand, which side? So there's all these different things, which I think sometimes is what turns people off or scares them out of doing anything because they don't get that silver bullet answer. But it's sometimes that risk tolerance has to come in there. And I think your, your strategy is very relevant because, you know, I was just reading a, an article, it must've been last night talking about all of these markets that are starting to become like the new up and coming markets. And, and it was all based on like the new, you know, the, the, the Omicron variants coming out. So people are looking more and more to someplace that they can drive to seclusion and have as their little kind of hideaway happy place. So I know that's part of what your skill is and your strategies as far as picking markets. So I'd like to hear a little bit about your philosophy on how you're picking markets and why you're picking markets right now. All right, sure. So in the short term space, I love and I'm not saying this is the right and only way. There are plenty of people that buy stuff in metro markets that are doing amazing. But the way that I do it is I stick to regional drivable vacation destinations. So these areas are dependent on tourism. So typically, so A, they're dependent on tourism and B, there's not a lot of hotel presence. So typically the regulations in these markets are very, very friendly towards short-term rental owners because, so if you take a metro market like Nashville, up until about 10 years ago, when Airbnb started becoming a big thing, all the tourists who went to Nashville were staying in hotels. Then you get a bunch of short-term rental investors coming in, hotels get mad that they're losing market share and you, you have problems created. In the markets where there's not a lot of hotel presence and it's been the normal thing for people to stay in vacation rentals forever. So I, I'm sitting on the Emerald Coast of Florida right now and there were vacation rentals here before there was electricity. So <laughs> the... Cities and counties, I figured out how to monetize that a long time ago. Short-term rentals are now so woven into the fabric of the economy of these places that it would just be way too detrimental to ever regulate against them. So that's why I stick to those. And then also because, and I talk about this in the book a little bit, that the regional drivable vacation destinations are both affordable and accessible. And over the course of the past two major economic events, I don't want to say recessions because we don't really know what what COVID is yet, it has kind of caused a boom. But so in 2008, it was the affordability that came into play. So, you know, people couldn't afford necessarily to fly to Mexico to go to the beach anymore, but they could drive to Panama City. And they did because they still wanted to go on vacation. 
So 2008 was more about affordability. Last year was more about accessibility. So people didn't want to fly to Mexico last year, not because they couldn't afford it, but because they didn't want to be in an airplane with people and get sick. But again, they could still drive to Panama City Beach and stay in control of their own environment in their own car. So they've kind of proven themselves to be recession resistant um, because most recessions are going to be, you know, financially driven, not necessarily pandemic driven. But over the past two, we've seen them perform, you know, pretty well. That's pretty awesome. And I, and I know I was just talking to my buddy, Chris, and, and he's got one, I think, in South Carolina in the mountains that he said is just crushing his long-term rentals. And, and we were having a discussion about, you know, buying and selling when's the right time. And I know a lot of people that sold off their short-term rentals and like just had to get rid of all the, the furniture and everything when the pandemic first hit, because there initially was that, that period of uncertainty, but they all wound up doing well. And we, we were both kind of talking of it. And I was like, you know, I don't know anybody who's really sold anything in the last few years that wishes that they didn't today. You know, everything's just yep. been doing great. But as far as being resistant to the difference in, um, in what's going on with the market, I was just reading a study that all the permits that are being pulled now, when those are all actually put into play and those projects are done on paper by 2024, if those are all built, we should be in a position that the supply has now gotten greater than the demand, which obviously we're not in right now. When we get into that and there's more of a supply of homes being built and it's investor driven, what type of things can you do to make sure that you're still going to be in a position where your short term rentals are performing? Unlike the last crash where there was like all these, you know, subdivisions after subdivisions that were all just sold to investors. There was no primary residence and everybody stopped dropping the price because I see like I just came back from Florida and I rented a short term rental in Orlando and the whole subdivision was short term rentals. I mean, they were all sold out, but is there any risk to the overbuilding there and then having to be more competitive with your pricing? So I can't really speak to Orlando because that's kind of a hybrid market. Like it's a big, big vacation destination, but it's also a metro market. So, uh, but I can, so in some of the other markets I'm in, like the Smoky Mountains is one that a lot of people talk about. They talk about, oh, well, you know, there's a ton of building going on in the Smokies. Are you worried about that? So you want to look at the tourism in relation to the amount of building. Like, yeah, people are building a ton of cabins, but the Smokies is also getting 20 million visitors a year. Uh, and they're getting like a million more year over year. And not only are there cabins being built, but there are also a lot of attractions being built. Like uh, I know the Cherokee Nation just bought and is developing something really big off the I-40 exit uh, to go into Pigeon Forge, which they're calling a something like a 25,000 square foot conference center. Everybody's pretty sure that's going to be a casino because you know <laughs> why open a conference center when you're allowed to open a casino? You're going to make so much more money. Uh, also, Dollywood. Dolly Parton bought 600 acres up there too. So there's a lot of uh, attraction development happening in addition to the um, cabin development. I know the state of Tennessee just bought a ton of property uh, along the river in Townsend down there too. So there's just like a lot of stuff happening that will also keep the tourists coming back. So you want to keep the tourism in mind too, when you're looking at supply and demand, because just because there's more houses doesn't mean the tourism isn't there to support it. That makes a ton of sense. So when you're, when you're renting these out, I was surprised because I've always been a hotel guy. I have like status with Marriott. And this was the first time that I actually rented a house. And I was surprised that I loved it. You know, you can go to the pool. There's not 50 other people there with the kids screaming and some guys mm -hmm. drank too much. So I, I actually loved yep. it. I was way more productive there. 
But I saw that in some of those, I don't know, again, if it's market specific, but not only were they renting out the house, but they were actually advertising for renting out different bedrooms. So they had like seven bedrooms and you could rent that like a bedroom to a different family. And I, I assume people are doing that. I wouldn't feel comfortable with that. But is that a strategy that you're seeing? No, I not not in the types of markets that I'm in. I know that people do that in metro markets a lot, but that's not something that I would ever consider renting or like owning <laughs> is a buy the room rental. Yeah, it seems like an like an adult dorm room. It almost seems like an accident waiting to happen. Like a yeah, like a um hostel. Yeah, yeah, there you go. It's <laughs> like a hostel. So when you're looking at these, I know like on the multifamily side, there's some general rules of thumb for like what the expenses should be. Do you have like a this is what I look for for a general expenses that I'm going to run for some quick analysis. And what's a general occupancy rate? Because to me, that's the scariest thing. A couple of them that I, I haven't pulled the trigger on, I'm just scared that they're not going to rent out. You know, like it's like, well, what do I do if I spend all this money on furniture and then they don't wind up renting them out? I mean, I guess you could always sell it and go a long term, but um, what's like a hard, fast rule just for a quick analysis when you're doing that? Yeah. So, um, there's not like a hard fast rule but just a very very loose rule of thumb is the is 40 percent of your gross after expenses after mortgage everything like between 35 and 45 percent is what you can kind of expect the way everything is right now uh, in terms of occupancy rate that can be a little bit misleading because without average daily rate occupancy rate means nothing so the thing you really want to be looking at is your gross annual income so like I own a four bedroom in the Smoky Mountains that has an 85% occupancy rate. I own a four bedroom in Destin, Florida that has like a 67, 70% occupancy rate. Paid roughly the same price for both. But the one in Destin actually makes $25,000 more a year than the one in the Smokies. So it just depends on you know what you, I, I'll take that lower occupancy for more cash all day long. But if you're somebody that just wants like the same amount month over month, then maybe you want to go, you know, with the higher occupancy one. Awesome. So when you guys are, are picking up properties now, I know you have a, a bit of a, a portfolio that's diversified. What is your thought process? Are you, are you looking at deals and going, okay, this is what it would make as a short term. This is what it would make as long term. This is what it would make as a flip or, or whatever. Or do you have specific markets that you're going, okay, this is where we're picking up short term stuff. This is where we're holding long term stuff. Yeah, so we keep them separate because in the big vacation markets, there are more short-term rentals than there are people who live there. So like if you're buying in the Smokies or in the Emerald Coast or like Broken Bow, you are not going to be able to convert it to a short-term rental. If something, I mean, to a long-term. So if something came along and wiped out all of the short-term rentals, not all of them are going to be able to be rented long-term because there's just too many of them. But if anything was going to do that to us, it was going to be COVID and it didn't. So I feel pretty good about that part. Awesome. So as far as like pitfalls of it, I know there's definitely pros and cons. The pros are obviously you can make so much more money than you can on a long-term rental. Um, from the management side, or not necessarily the management side, but labor intensive, it's, it seems like it could potentially be a lot of work, but obviously you put in processes and systems in place, you know, like uh, I went to Italy and, and one of our friends in Italy he was like, man, I'm, I'm killing it with my Airbnb in Rome. But like every day he had to leave us at like 930 to go swap out the person and make sure everything was getting changed and then check the next guy out at three. So what are some ways that you can make this a little bit more efficient so that way you're not really putting so much time in day to day? Because obviously that's where people are looking to get into real estate to create more time. Yeah, yeah. So the having to like go meet guests is so 
no, you don't want to do that because it's a waste of time. The guests don't want to meet you either. It's weird. <laughs> so, um, remote, remote door locks, like a uh, Schlage encode is what we use. There's a few different brands out there, uh, where they're connected to Wi-Fi. You can change the code from wherever you are all day. That's what you need. So really it's, um, it's just, once you get your system set up, it's really just managing the system. So you're not really having to spend, if you have one property, you're spending maybe 20 minutes a week on it and not even all at one time. It might just be answering a message here and there, but uh, a lot of the property management software makes it so easy to automate that you really don't have to actually respond to anyone unless they ask you something very specific, like, hey, where do you keep the crock pot? <laughs> and do you have um do you have like VAs and things like that that are taking some of the basic calls? So you're like you're kind of a, a break in case of emergency for stuff that they can't answer? Yeah, yeah. So we do have a VA who helps us with our eight, but he is full time with us and does like a lot of things for us in addition to that. So we have eight, but it's not it's not his full-time gig. It's just a few hours a week of his full-time gig, but I definitely recommend self-managing at least at first. So you know how to teach someone what to do. And then as you scale, maybe adding a VA instead of paying a full property management split. Cause the average property management split right now is 25% of your gross. If I had paid that to someone this year, I would have paid somebody $200,000. Man. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> yeah, there's better things I, as a real estate investor can do with $200,000 instead of paying somebody to do something that can be done from my phone. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's just an interesting topic. I'm, I'm sure there's tons of it in your book and there's probably hours we can do just on management alone, but I think the, the thought process on it, you know, if it was this time a year and a half ago, I would have never, ever considered doing any sort of self-management. And then I fell into one a month or two ago on a sub two we were doing just because it was very close to me. And I was like, ah, whatever, you know, and there's such a demand for rentals right now. And with all the tools, like even just the basic stuff, like, like Zillow, you can collect rents, you can do screening, they'll draw up the docs. Like, I feel like it's come a very long way for you to have visibility and be able to expedite things on the management side. I, me personally, I don't know if I would do it on a multifamily right now, but for single families, like it's, it's really become way more efficient and way safer to self-manage. What, what's your overall thought process on kind of what's going on in the, in the management market and where you're going to see things going in the future. Cause it, it is getting pretty exciting with some of the tools that they have. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's always going to be a subset of investors that just do not want to mess with self-managing. I think a lot of the more archaic, huge property management companies that have been around in the different vacation markets for a long time are going to go away because those guys are, you know, they've been around since the eighties, seventies, in some cases, and they didn't have to use Airbnb and VRBO back then, and they're not going to do it now. So a lot of them are operating only on their independent website. They're not on Airbnb. They're not on VRBO. And in 2021, people just do not go online and search Destin, Florida vacation rentals and open up a hundred tabs for the hundreds of different property managers and compare <laughs> their inventory. They're just picking up their phone, going right on Airbnb or VRBO and booking something cute and moving on. So I think those old school types of managers are either going to have to adjust with technology or they're going to go away entirely. There are managers now that are using the right tools and are optimizing your price per night and are using the right platforms. So I think those guys are going to be the ones who kind of stand out. And a lot of times now, like you don't have to have a brick and mortar office anymore to be a property manager. So, and you're not having to pay 
as many employees as a lot of the more traditional property managers are. Like there's one down the street from me that has an entire huge, big U-shaped two-story strip mall that they have every single um, suite in there is them. That's really expensive. I mean, the rent on that has got to be a lot. If it's even rent, they may own it. It's still a lot. And then Beam, how many employees does it take to need that much office space? That's a lot of money. So I think the more streamlined technology, remote work driven ones are going to be the ones that stand out. If you have been kicking yourself that you didn't start investing in real estate sooner, whether you're beginner, intermediate, or advanced, any way you're looking to get it on a residential, commercial, land development, wholesale, and fix and flips, whatever it is, let's find a way to get you involved in some projects, get you some properties, whether you want to sell some properties to me, whether you want to buy some properties from me, whether residential, fix and flip, cash flow, multifamily, whatever it is you're looking for, let's figure out a way to get you involved or find a way for us to partner up on some deals. Go to www.nicknicknick.com, go on the consultation tab and figure out how to schedule an appointment to talk about where you fit in if you are not sure, or you can just reach out to me on any of my social media channels. If you go on www.nicknicknick.com slash links, you will see all the different ways to connect with me and figure out how we can start to work together, make it happen. Everybody that invests in real estate always just says they wish they did it sooner. Best time to start is today. I think that's really interesting. As, as far as the management goes with the screening now, is there regulations like there are on the single family side as far as like laws and protected classes and people you can say yes and no to? Oh yeah. So fair housing is still definitely a thing with protected classes. Um, they also have, so age is not necessarily a protected class, but it is, and it may be like, I'm not up on my laws right now, but it is on short-term rental platforms. So a lot of people will say, I don't want anybody under 25. If somebody were to want to report you to the platform and say, Hey, they're being an ageist, they can do that. So, um, but yeah, it all works exactly the same as anything else. Yeah. I mean, I think my last question just on the safety factor of that is how do you protect yourself against like the, so, so the one that I rented, you, you could only rent there for a minimum of, I think like three or four days, which I'm sure there's a barrier to entry there, but the houses on the other side of me, like literally right next door, they were rented out every night. And every night they were rented out to like 19 people and they were just throwing parties every night. And, you know, it didn't look like they were trashing the place or anything like that. But I think that that's a fear is that, you know, you have this nightly thing. Now there's going to be a bunch of 25 year olds that come in and they just throw a huge party and trash the place. How do you protect yourself against, uh, I guess, screening against that situation? Or if that happens, what do you do to mitigate that? So you do your best to screen. It's going to happen to you at some point. Like if you own rentals, a certain number of rentals for a certain amount of time, it's not if, it's when. But you can just ask the right questions and kind of screen that out. Typically, uh, I found partiers will tell on themselves. Like they will, <laughs> they'll say right out of the gate, like, oh, hey, this is the perfect spot for our you know, family reunion of 100 people. And it's a two bedroom house. And you're like, oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, or you know, this is the perfect place for a bachelorette party. We're, you know, 27 friends all meeting back up for the first time in 10 years. So they'll, you, they'll let you know, typically. Awesome. So uh, funding is, is an interesting point here. And I know you mentioned you have the mortgage shop. I think it's, I believe it's called, right? Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about the, the funding of a short-term rental, some of the ways people can get in. And then I, I think it's an interesting topic because I don't think people understand that lenders are almost like stores like one might sell batteries one might sell milk they are not all the same and i know you have some unique programs and things you can offer people so i'd love to hear all the ins and outs of that yeah yeah so just like we started the short-term shop because there weren't really any agents in the space that uh, were specializing in that 
we found we were having to send our buyer clients to, you know, 10 different lenders to try and find the right product that was going to work the best for them. So we were like, well, why don't we just do this? So we started the mortgage shop and have brought a lot of the most commonly used products for short-term rental investing under one roof. But the one that we have that you can't really get in too many other places, there are a few other lenders that have it, uh, but not very many. So we have the new thing with short-term rentals is DSCR loans. So DSCR stands for debt service coverage ratio. It works kind of like a commercial loan. So it does not go off of your own personal debt to income like a conventional loan. Um, and let me just preface this with, there is no interest rate that is ever going to be as low as a conventional loan. So people are like, oh, well, that sounds great, but the interest rate's high. Well, yeah, because the interest rate is high because they're basically giving you a loan based off of nothing. So um, the way that you qualify for a DSCR loan is based on what the property will make on a one-to-one -one ratio with the mortgage. So for example, if your mortgage is 2,500 on this property, we just need to show that the property is gonna make 2,500 a month, which of course it will, or you would not be buying it. So you can buy it right in an LLC. You can't buy um, a property in an LLC on a conventional loan, and we can do them for 15% down. So 15% down is a really low down payment for a, uh, a loan like that. So uh, you can have unlimited finance properties, 15% down, buy it right in your LLC, does not go over, or sorry, does not qualify you based on your own debt to income ratio. So it's pretty cool because the sky's the limit as long as you have a down payment. So I really wish that had been around when I first started. That's awesome. Is there is there options for like, are people doing this as a primary with three and a half percent down and then doing an Airbnb after like a year? Is there a different, like, is that a strategy that people are using in this space? I think they are in metro markets, but for us, since all of our markets are our vacation destinations, they would have to probably relocate to do that, to not commit mortgage fraud. So we don't have very many people do that at all. You know, another thing you see is like, I know it's like sub twos are huge because of, uh, you know, the fact that a lot of the time people are looking for write-offs, so they don't show a lot on paper. So it's hard sometimes for investors to get qualified for full doc loans on this one that you're just talking about now that's based on the property. How strict is the criteria if you do have an investor like that, that maybe doesn't look great on paper, but they do have the cash? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's a great product for people who like, maybe you're switching from W2 to 1099 work or, um, and some, a lot of people use partnerships uh, and that's definitely a good way to get started. But if you're able to get one or two properties on your own, I think you're going to realize pretty quickly that you wish you would have just bought one or two on your own uh, because partnerships are great. I've done one of them on two different properties and it worked out really well um, for what we were doing. But once we got more cash flow going, that one became like, oh, these two properties don't make as much money as the other two because we're having to split it two ways, which eventually, which is really cool. I don't know if a lot of people know this. Uh, you can, if your partner buys you out, you can 1031 that money into something else. So I don't know the ins and outs. I use Dave Foster at ERG 1031. He is the goat of 1031s. Uh, so we had our partner buy us out of these two. We 1031 into a bigger property in the same market. So that was pretty awesome. Um, but typically the way that partnerships work in short term is one person's the money person, the other person's doing the management and you split 50-50. Um, but first, before you go to that straight 50-50, at least the way we did it was we were paying our money partner uh, a certain amount per month. We call it a mini mortgage until what would have been our half of the down payment was paid off. And then it was a straight 50-50. We do the management 
and he just was the money guy and hung out. That's interesting. I like that strategy. And I, I think that obviously with the vacation rental market, the way it is, if you needed to buy out, there's probably ways you could, if you needed to sell or refinance, at least you have some equity in it too, right? Right. And then are they, are they looking at when they're looking at the DC, at DSCR, are they looking at it, what it would be based on a nightly rental rate? Or are they looking mm -hmm. at it as the annual, if you had to hold it long-term? They're looking at what it would be short-term. So uh, if it has any rental history, great. They can use that. If it doesn't, they can just use comps from nearby. And if there's not any of those, they'll use AirDNA data, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. Cause that's something that I don't think they were doing not that long ago. They weren't really taking that nightly rent into account. So I think that's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. That's cool. So like, so talking about the short-term shop, like for my strategy, I feel like this will work really well. I want to schedule something with you either way, but you know, I was living in New York. I was traveling all over the country for like the last 10 years. I had a, a place in Chicago that was kind of like my bat cave that I would come here and hide out and get some stuff done. But, you know, now you get stuck here when the travel stops and then the weather sucks. So I start looking at Tennessee. I start looking at Florida. I start looking at these different places. And, you know, I, I'm not used to being in one spot. So my thought process was, let me pick two or three different places that I would want to live. And let me get some short-term rentals there, get them furnished out. And then if I want to move there for a month or two, I move in. And then when I move out, I'm not sitting on a house that I have to sell. I get some more cash flow in it and move around. Is that a story that you're hearing a lot for people that are contacting your company? Yeah, yeah. So I hear that mostly in our Florida markets just because they are kind of seasonal. So you can move into the property during the off season and not cut into your income. Like I could go live in my Destin property that I talked about that's made $175,000 this year between March and October. <laughs> I can move in there for the holidays and stay until February and not cut into any of that 175,000. The Smokies are like Broken Bow or um, like the Blue Ridge area is a little more year round. So it'd be a little more difficult to do that. You would have to block it off. But yeah, we have people, especially now since COVID and work is more remote and school is more flexible. We do have people doing that. That's awesome. And, you know, I know, I think the, the golden question people ask is like, well, prices are high. Should I buy a rental right now? Or should I wait to see if the market cools down? And I know it's, it's a gamble either way, but what's your predictions on kind of what, if you get that question, I'm sure people say, should I buy an hour? Should I wait? What are your thoughts on that? So the best time to buy real estate was always yesterday. <laughs> Second best time is today. So here's what I think about that. Like, yeah, at some point the market is going to cool off, but how much further is it going to go up before it does that? So if, if in the future it cools off, prices go down 10%, but they've gone up 20% between today and then it's still 10% higher than it was today. So I think it's unrealistic to think that they're going to go back to like 2016 prices. I think that it'll cool off, but I think we're going to go up a little bit first. I, I agree with that a thousand percent. You know, it's, it's like we were just saying earlier, the, some of the mistakes I made in the properties that at some point you're like, man, why did I buy this? When you look at it today, you look like a genius five, 10 years later, you know what I mean? So yeah. as long as you're patient, it's, it's, it's a very forgiving asset class, which I like about it. So um, talk about what the short-term shop does, how you work with people, how do people find you kind of what, what's the, how did that come about? Sure. Yeah. So short-term shop, we're a real estate team brokered by eXp. We're in seven states, 10 markets. I'll just list them really quick since we're here. Um, the Smoky, sorry. Oh gosh, I just bit my tongue. The Smokies in Tennessee, Blue Ridge, Georgia, Gulf Shores, Alabama, uh, Galveston and Crystal Beach, Texas, Broken Bow, Oklahoma, the high country of North Carolina, which is like the Boone, Banner Elk, Blowing Rock, Sugar and Beach Mountains area. Uh, we are about to open Outer Banks after the first of the year. 
And then we're in three markets in Florida. So we're in the Emerald Coast, which is our biggest one, which is the Destin, Panama City Beach, 30A area. Just east of that, the Forgotten Coast, which is Cape Sandblast, Mexico Beach, and St. George Island. And then also we're outside Orlando, and we call it the Disney Market. Sick. That's awesome. So are you getting properties for people that are already like fixed up their turnkey? Are you finding things that need work and then they're fixing them up and they're getting a little bit there? Is there some equity in these or they buy them like market value for straight cash flow right now, just because the rental market's so hot? There's a little bit of both. So if a client uses an agent from the short-term shop in any of our markets, uh, we have a whole back-end training program where we teach them everything they need to know about managing their property remotely from how to set up their Airbnb and VRBO listings to how to use all the property management and pricing software to automate and streamline and make things easy for them all the way to helping them source their cleaners and handymen. So we do that all while they're under contract. So by the time they close with us, they're ready to turn the key and go. Uh, There are some value add properties out there, just not as many as there are like in a metro market where, you know, maybe somebody lived in it for 15 years and it's beat up and it needs work. Most of the properties in the markets that we're in are existing vacation rentals, which is cool because they'll come furnished. So you don't have to spend, you know, 40, 50,000 on furnishing. Uh, But most of what we're seeing is like basically turnkey, but might need $5,000 worth of just sprucing. Ever wanted to play the drums? Or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real Mackenzie's, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He has played all over the world and he is also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to 833-632-0585. Again, text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-632-0585 for your free online drum lesson. Okay, that's awesome now. So talk a little bit about your book. I have your book. I'm excited to finish it. I've been listening to your podcast a ton. I think it's awesome. And I, and I love that you, the first episode with you and your husband and you interviewed him, that was pretty awesome too. It's <laughs> dynamic. But yeah, so talk about the book because I know it came out. I know Bigger Pockets put it out. It's got a ton of great info on there. And I know you're doing a lot more on the education side. So I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, yeah. So the book is basically just a guide on how to choose a market, how to analyze a property, how to how to pick a team and put put together a team in the market you're going to buy, how to buy it remotely. And then the second half is how to manage it remotely. So um, none of it is like a super deep dive. It's a little bit um, higher level for maybe those who aren't you know, heavily into short terms already to kind of teach you the ropes of how to do it to get you to the point where you're ready to buy something. That's awesome. And you have a, there's a class you have too, right? Yeah, yeah. So we do have a masterclass and it's kind of like the book in live coaching form. So it's six weeks. We meet on Wednesdays at one central and we cover a different topic each week. And, you know, we have a lot of like, we go over a lot of stuff that's in the book, but we, there's like a lot of time for question and answer. So, um, lots of collaboration there too. 
That's awesome. And obviously anybody listening, if you go on the show notes, I'll have links to everything on there for the book and the course and all the ways to find short-term shop and the, the mortgage shop. So I'm excited to learn more about that. This is um, definitely the class that I'm most excited about right now of breaking into. It's something new. So it's got me kind of learning again, which is fun. You know, it's just something different, but I did get some questions from uh, some, uh, some of the listeners and some people in our Facebook group, if you don't mind knocking out a couple of these. Yeah, absolutely. So the first one is how do you conquer, I think you actually answered this already, but how do you conquer the fear of the property not being occupied? I know you said there's some sites and things you could do some research on to figure that out. Yeah, yeah. So you want to look at as many data points as possible. And this is going to sound crazy to someone who might be new, but rental history means basically nothing. It is what one random property manager has been able to do with one random property. So what you want to do is, so there's a few different places you can get market-wide data on the property size that you're looking at. AirDNA is one. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. Uh, Rabu is another, R-A-B-B-U. And then the third is, so Price Labs, which is actually a tool that you'll need after you buy the property to dynamically price it. Um, Price Labs has a function called the market dashboards, which it only shows like the previous 30 days, but it's got a lot of good data as well. So as many data points as possible. And then also there are some things that the data can't tell you, like why it says what it says. It can't analyze things like amenities or quality of photos or things like that. So we use at the short-term shop, what we call the enemy method, where you just <laughs> zoom in at Airbnb and VRBO and look at the neighborhood you want to buy and look at your enemies or your neighbors. Enemy method is more fun to say than the neighbor method. So we called it that. And uh, you're looking to see, you know, if you're looking at a four bedroom in the neighborhood and one of the main comps to yours is also four bedrooms, but like has terrible photos, they're fuzzy, people's fingers are in, you know, the picture and, you know, that that host never responds. So they're way, way back in the search results and nobody ever sees it. Nobody ever gets booked. That's going to be dragging the data down. Or conversely, if there's one next door where they're like, comes with a private jet, comes with a private chef, a chauffeur, they're going to be getting a lot more than you. So that's going to be dragging the data up. So you're looking at all the data, but then also applying it to, you know, looking on the platforms and seeing why the data says what it says. I think that that's a great answer. And uh, as far as refi qualifications, if you're doing that, is there, is, is it, I guess we talked about this a little bit too, with the qualifications changing for the nightly stuff, but I know like for the Burr method, a lot of the times people will get loans that are based on more of the, an asset-based loan, but then they go to refinance with a normal bank and the, the bank wants to go full doc. Are you finding, um, uh, well, I guess in your situation, you're not really pulling burrs out because you're getting them already kind of fixed up, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So furniture prices was the other question. So that's, that's something that I think is probably a moving target depending on the market. And like you said, depending on the competition, but do you rent it? Do you buy it? Is there financing available for it? Like what's the best way if you're getting into a short-term rental right now and you need to furnish the whole house, what's the most economic way to do it? I would go to, uh, a furniture store that will allow you to finance it and just do it that way. Uh, you can expect, I use a 10,000 per bedroom rule of thumb. And that doesn't mean 10,000 per bedroom plus whatever it costs to furnish the living room. Like if it's a four bedroom house, you're looking at probably spending 40,000 to furnish it five bedroom, 50,000. Um, so I would probably finance it on like a low interest credit card or like low interest with the the place you're buying from if you can't just pay cash. I don't recommend renting because people are going to damage it. And then it's like the whole thing, like you want to just own it. That's a great answer. Um, as far as bedrooms and stuff, are you focusing in on like one, two, threes and fours? Or, you know, I know some friends that are doing really well in some markets like Missouri that they're, they're doing like 
10 to 15 bedroom houses. So is what's your, your sweet spot? The highest return on investment typically across the board does come at the four bedroom and up mark. So I like four and five bedrooms, but I mean, I own a studio and a few one and two bedrooms that I won't ever sell because they're doing what I need them to do. So there's no wrong way to do it. Like I know one guy who could buy anything in the world he wanted and he has like 40 one and two bedroom units and that's just what he does. And that's just the way he likes it. And that's what he's going to do. So there's no wrong way to do it. That's awesome. I love that. So um, what I like to do at the end of this is just call it the victory lap and wrap up a couple of these final questions. This has been awesome. I really love the, the answers you're giving. And I think it's, it's such an interesting asset class because there's so many different ways to do it, but you seem to have come into what works for you, which I think is a huge thing for people to take away that are listening to this, that are wondering which direction to go. And I love that not only do you invest, but you also help people with the funding, you educate them if they go through you, you help them with the locations and all that stuff. So I think that that's a piece that you have all those bases covered where you will find a lot of agents that they might help you with it, but they don't actually really understand real estate and what goes into managing it. So I do love that you're a one-stop shop. And I think that that's a huge resource for somebody who has a fear of getting into the asset class to work with somebody like you who can kind of hold their hand through them. So I'll definitely be in touch with that. But um, in, in following up here, what is one of your favorite quotes? Mm, um, favorite quote. So uh, my favorite quote that my husband and I say to each other all the time is winners focus on winning, losers focus on winners. <laughs> I love that. I actually haven't heard that before. That's awesome. Do you have a, uh, a, aside from your book, do you have any uh, books that you would recommend that's uh, one of your favorite books? Doesn't even have to be real estate, just something that kind of fires you up. Uh, I like any of Ryan Holiday's books, but specifically The Obstacle is the Way. That's a really good one. Cool. Awesome. Um, what is one of your biggest mistakes in real estate? Um... I mean, I, I know everybody probably says this, but just not buckling down and starting sooner. I love that. I think that that's true every day, no matter when you start, you always wish you started sooner. Um, what are some of your favorite punk bands? That's something I was dying to ask in the beginning. I, I had a band. We played the Warp Tour. You know, my brother's in a hardcore band. My friends are in a, cool. another band. So I, I, I love that. I'm big into music. Oh, so my favorite punk bands. Um, I really love The Damned. I love, I mean, of course, The Ramones. Uh... I mean, I just love it all. Uh, the Runaways, which I wouldn't necessarily say are a, were a punk band. Um, but yeah, those those are some good ones. That's awesome. Were you going to the shows? Like what, what were the clubs you were going to see shows at when you were in New York? You know, I know when I was doing the Tramps, Wetlands, Coney Island High, um, Irving Plaza. Irving Plaza, I've been to a few times. Uh, Brooklyn Bowl. I was just there like in, I was there 2010 to 2013. So Decently recent, but not all that recent. Um, where else did we go? What was, uh, Webster Hall. Oh, yeah. yeah. Webster yeah. Hall. That's awesome. So you were, you were saying you're the visionary of your company, right? I guess so. <laughs> so that makes sense to me because my, my business partner has always had a really hard time figuring me out. And then one day she saw that like I used to have like a green mohawk and I played guitar and I was doing like all this stuff. And she goes, oh, I get it. She's like, you're an artistic person who kind of fell into business. That's why yes. you fit my mold. So that totally makes sense for somebody like you, that you have that creative side in you. So I do love that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, you have to know the casualties. So my band oh, yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 I've seen them tons of times. I think my, my brother uh, played a festival with them, maybe not all that long ago, but yeah, we just love going to see the casualties play. Yeah. Yeah. We toured with them a few times. Oh, get out of here. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> 
that guy had the coolest hair. They used to play with, uh, I used to see them a lot with like Elias Stitches was the band that the, the, the front man. Mm, yes, of that was, yes, I forgot about them. Yes. Uh-huh. I'm surprised they didn't get bigger because like that guy had such an amazing stage presence. They were, they were a great live band, man. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, we've probably yeah, been cool. at the same show a time or two. <laughs> I thought you looked familiar. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, this has been awesome. I really appreciate it. Um, talk about how do people find you? How do people work with you? Social tags, all that kind of stuff. What, what are all the things going on with you now and in the future? Yeah, yeah. So you can find us at theshorttermshop.com. There's a box right there that says book a consultation. Do that. We have turned the phones off because the consultation typically works the best for everyone. So uh, definitely click that box and we'll get you hooked up. And then you can find me on Instagram at the short term shop. Awesome. And uh, last and final question here that I think is an interesting dynamic. So a lot of people that I talk to want to get into real estate or just do something to better their lives, whatever it is. And then they kind of ghost you on the phone and then you get them back and you figure out like, Hey, what's going on? And they go, well, I was really excited about this, but then I went home and I talked to my partner or my husband or my wife and they don't want to do this. And they think it's, and they, they're so fired up for something, but they have that resistance and that negativity and they have no support at home. And, And to me, I came from a place that I didn't have money, but I did have a family that supported my decisions and the risks I was taking. And I think that that's even more important than coming from a financial background is having that support at home because it will literally make or break your experience. And because you're in a position where you do this business with your husband, mm-hmm. how, what are some tips you can give to people that might not have that support at home or that are working with their spouse and don't know how to cut off those boundaries that it's 1030, you're watching TV and they're like, Hey, that tenant, you know, so the, the boundary lines get crossed. Oh, we have no boundaries. It's like, you know, like 1030 at night and like, oh man, this one person just did this. And then like, we both get wound up and it's just don't, I'm not a good example of boundaries with guests and all that and real estate boundaries. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, this has been awesome. I really appreciate it. I look forward to finishing your book. I'm definitely going to look into uh, booking something with you to hopefully pick up awesome. my first short-term rental. I would love to be with you. Uh, I was really excited to have you on. Thank you for sharing your time with us today and your experience. Any final thoughts before we let you go? I don't think so. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Have a great day. You bring your A-game. Avery Carl, ladies and gentlemen.